Well, good morning. Good morning. I can imagine that some of you, while you were listening to that old Andre Crouch song from the Jesus movement, the Jesus revolution, late 60s, early 70s, some of you, as you heard that, might have felt those tears rising up in your eyes, those tender memories of how it's the truth. It's the truth. It's the truth. Learn to trust in Jesus. Learn to trust in God. If I didn't have any problems, I wouldn't know that he could solve them. Wouldn't know what faith in the Lord would do. I, some folks get to crying on those kind of memories. Some folks need to get up and walk around a little bit. You know, Just raise your hand. Lord, that's me. That's my story. I thank you for the mountains, but I thank you for the valleys. Thank you for the storms you brought me through. I want to give you a two-line prayer, a two-line prayer, a two-line prayer that I want to encourage you to join with me in, and it will be the focus of our time together in the Word. Here it is. Do it again, Lord. Pour out your spirit. Line number one. Do it again, Lord. Do what again, Lord? Pour out your spirit. Now, I can imagine that there are some warriors, warriors that are listening to me this morning. You might think, I have legitimate reasons to be worried. Seems like we get we keep getting one wave after another of troubling, difficult news with regard to our nation, our political setting, our cultural setting. It may be that that this is a season where there are news reports coming to you about family or work or health. Here's the prayer again. Do it again, Lord. Pour out your spirit. Do it again, Lord. We'll get to this in a, in a minute or two or three. But you live in a nation, the history of which is no stranger to Lord, to the Lord pouring out his spirit upon a people. I stand before you today as a product, as a result, in a sense, of what many of us have come to believe really was a measure of a spiritual awakening in this country called the Jesus movement, the Jesus revolution, 1960s, late 60s, early 70s. The Vietnam War was blowing up. We were watching Walter Cronkite report at the end of every week the number of American young men and women who had been killed in an Asian war. Why were we even there was the question that came to be just ripping at the hearts of the American soul. 
there were, during those years, there, there, were, there came to be not just large demonstrations, but, but riots and soldiers in the backs of Jeeps with 50 caliber machine guns patrolling streets in Houston and L.A., there was racial tension. Martin Luther King had been killed. There was political tension because of what was going on in Vietnam and on and on. And, and, and drugs were coming into high schools and colleges like never before in those days. It seemed as if the very fabric of the strength of our nation was being ripped apart. But here's what happened, folks. Here's what happened. There were people who knew Jesus, who knew Jesus, and many who would come to know Jesus. And what's his name? His name is Savior. His name is Rescuer. He is at his best when things are at their worst. That's when we really know who he is and what he can do. And lo and behold, in the midst of all of that that was going on in the 60s, nobody really knows how it happened except that it was just on God's calendar and it was time for rescue to be sent to the United States of America. And it was, it was a group of teenagers and 20-somethings on the West Coast, and they, without knowing what was going on there, there was a similar kind of thing happening in, in a Christian college on the, on the eastern part of the country. And all of a sudden, there just seemed to be an atmosphere instead of instead of hating God and, and trying to turn away from him and destroy those kinds of foundations of our country, they seem to just be an inclination toward the things of Jesus. It wasn't so much about church as it was about the person of Jesus. During that time, that song written by a, a, a a slave ship captain, a former slave ship captain, John Newton, the song Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I can see. Made it to the top of the pop charts in the United States. Folks singing Amazing Grace. Comes to Houston. I, that, Shirley and I were in Houston at that time, not even really, not even knowing each other at that time, but, but caught up in this, in this thing of, of, of that there's more, there, there's more to know in Jesus than just being religious. He's a person, and he's got arms filled with love, and he has a heart for people. And we went. I remember one time we heard Andre Crouch at a concert there in Houston, Texas. Great big old guy sat down at that piano and just started playing that and started singing that song. And I mean, it was like heaven just, just broke through and filled the room. Lord, do it again. Pour out your spirit. 
It doesn't matter how difficult. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. When he gets ready to pour out his spirit and he answers the cries of his people for that to be done, he can rend the heavens, as the prophet said. He can rend the heavens and come down. Jonathan Edwards spoke of the movement of the Spirit as the first great awakening began. Before we were even a nation, we were still colonies. 1734, the fall of 1734. He had been preaching on a series of doctrinal messages on the justification by faith alone. It's not going to church. It's not giving money. It's trusting Jesus Christ and Jesus alone for sins to be forgiven and for favor with the Father to be received. And he said he began to notice that it seemed as if in early December of 1734 in Northampton, Massachusetts, it seemed as if the Holy Spirit began to settle in. And what he meant by that is there came to be indications of people who hadn't really been knowing, talking anything, speaking anything about their relationship with the Lord or even an interest in spiritual things. They just began to speak of those things. They began to engage in conversations. And he said one of the things that was the most amazing was that there was a young woman who is called in those days a, a company keeper. She was one of the most well-known company keepers in town. He said it seemed as if she had been genuinely changed, that she began, she began to give evidence. And this is a, a five-point Calvinist preacher, very scholarly, and, and understanding the depths of, of the word in ways that, that most, most folks would ever even, not even be able to consider. He, he, he knew those things, but he began to notice that there was something of the Spirit of God happening in the hearts of people. And this, this, this young woman began to speak of and, and, and tell folks about the change that was happening within her, that, that she felt forgiven. She felt the love of Christ. There was a new joy and a new purpose, and things were left behind that she had been known for, and there was a new life. 1734, he began to describe how people from the community, knowing of her reputation, would find themselves drawn to her. Tell me what's been happening to you. Talk to me about the change that's going on in your life. Northampton, Massachusetts, just a, just a small little community. But folks, it was one piece of what the Lord was doing without other folks knowing in other parts of New England, in other parts of the colonies, that there were God's people praying and the Lord, Spirit of the Lord was beginning to move in hearts. They didn't know that, but the time would come when all of those small fires would be fanned together into one great blaze, and there would be a shocking and amazing, transforming spiritual awakening like so many had never even known or thought of or imagined could happen. That happened again Around the year 1800, 1799, 1800, 1801, 1802, first great awakening in the 1730s, 40s. The American Revolution happened. The, the Revolutionary War began 1776. We became a nation. But coming out of that season where, where there was great dependence upon the Lord during the Revolutionary War, that long war with Britain, coming out of that, that there came to be a season of real spiritual decline. 
It was as if the effects of the first great awakening that lasted maybe for 30 years began to, began to fade. And so there was a need one more time for the Lord to do it again. Lord, do it again. Pour out your spirit on this land. Pour out your spirit on the United States of America. Pour out your spirit, Lord. It was a group, whenever he can find a group, it doesn't have to be highfalutin preachers with their collars turned around backwards and all kinds of degrees by there. And you know who he found in the 1800s? It was a group of folks and their prayer meetings were called the Haystack Prayer Meetings. They were farmers in, in further south of New England, in the Cumberland area. And, and, and they, would, they wanted to find a place to meet to pray. And there's just a handful of them. And, they, and for some reason, they didn't go into the local church. They went out into the fields where they worked. And they found themselves out in those corn stalks where they would stack them up. You know how that used to be? How they'd see it all in your, in your Thanksgiving old pilgrim pictures? You know, and it, it's a very Thanksgiving-looking scene. But out there in the middle of those cornfields, with the shocks stacked up and bound together, this group of young men, primarily young men, just began to pray, Lord, do it again. Do what we heard Jonathan Edwards talk about and Cotton Mather talk about. Do again what we heard that George Whitfield, when he preached things happen. Would you do it again? And lo and behold, in time, there came another wonderful breakthrough that could be only defined in terms of the Spirit of God being poured out. The one that is of striking similarity to our situation today is what some have termed the third great awakening. It was also called the 1857 Prayer Revival or called the Layman's Prayer Revival. Notice these four striking similarities between 1857 and 2020, the two nations, same nation, two different time periods, these four similarities. In March of 1857, the Supreme Court rendered the Dred Scott decision, which meant the Dred Scott, a slave who had been taken from a slave-holding state, slave-approved state, into a territory where slavery was not allowed. He was taken there by his owner, stayed there for a while, brought back into the slave-holding state. He found a lawyer who would take up his case, and this case was, since I've been taken to a free area, I want to sue for my freedom. There was... Much unrest going on in the nation. This is four years before the Civil War started, 1861. This is 1857. There was already much concern, hearts in the northern part of the country primarily, saying slavery is wrong. It needs to end. But for some reason, there was still movement and support from the slaveholding states on the Supreme Court for them to reject Dred Scott's plea. He was not allowed to have his freedom because a slave is not worthy of citizenship. That happened in, in, in the spring of 1857. It worked its way back into and was fomenting. There was, there was racial tension. 
There was political tension because of the decisions and the, and the, the, the presence of slavery in the, in the country. Political tension, racial tension. There was a financial collapse. You, you Google this, 1857 panic, the panic of 1857. Banks were closing. The railroads that, that had been so much at the forefront of the development of the nation, remember, we don't have all 50 states yet. We still have territories. We're still moving toward the Pacific coast. Those railroads got in financial trouble. Banks began to close. There were thousands of, of small businesses around the country that were shut down. There, were, there was a high frequency, higher than the normal frequency of suicides and, and, and murders in the, in the commercial districts of the country because of the financial collapse. And then the fourth similarity is this. There was an, a pandemic. This was the third one in a series. They couldn't figure out how to stop the disease of cholera, of cholera. Thousands were killed in the United States. Several million, evidently, around the world. They were just beginning to figure out that cholera is tied to dirty drinking water. You clean up the drinking water and, and you can bring an end to it. But they didn't know that for sure. They, they weren't, they, there, was no, there, there was no significant, certainly no vaccine. There was no medicine to take care of it. Racial tension, political tension, financial collapse, and a pandemic. And out of that setting, folks, into the middle of all of that heart-rending trouble that was working on the hearts of people, God was using that, that setting as the backdrop or the setting within which he would pour out his spirit. I'm saying to us today as a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the United States of America, we have a history. When we get into situations that are like this, like we are in now, we have a history. We can go back to a time when the Lord has repeatedly answered the cry of his people when his people began to say, Lord, do it again. Pour out your spirit. This is not the time for the church to be scared. This is not the time for Christians to be quivering in fear. And you get a steady dose of the news and that's exactly where it'll take you. Folks, you don't need Jesus in your heart in order to worry in this day and time. You don't need the help of the Spirit to be fearful of what in the world is going to happen with our political climate. You can do that without Jesus. But with Jesus, alive in your heart, he is the Lord, he is the master, he is the king, he is seated on his throne, he's not up there wringing his hands trying to call strategic meetings or what we're going to do next. He knows. He has a plan. And I'm going to tell you what his plan is, I believe. In this setting, in this context of where we're living right now, his heart is to answer again the cries of his people. Lord, we don't need more money. We don't need necessarily this person elected and that person defeated. 
We just need you to pour out your spirit on America one more time and do what is in your heart to do. You know, you live long enough and you realize you can be absolutely convinced that certain people don't need to get elected and certain other people do need to get elected. And then lo and behold, as time goes on, the one you thought needed to get elected gets elected and he or she turns into one of the greatest disappointments that you've ever experienced in your life. That's why it's not that we're to be asking, Lord, my will be done. It's your will be done. You know the hearts of people. You know how to change. You know how to encourage. You know how to instruct. You know how to alter. You know how to transform. You know how to make strong. Your will be done. Oh, now, that is a backdrop. I want to invite you to consider reconvening your prayer circle. The prayer circles that were in operation earlier in the year. Remember those 40 days of prayer? We did two sets of them earlier in the year because we started out with the first one and the pandemic hit. You know, we prayed and we're praying, Lord, all that's in your heart to do, praying over specific issues and needs. And then this, this virus began to take root. Once we saw that happening, Many of us felt we need to go another 40 days, and a whole bunch of you went for two, two rounds of the 40-day prayer circle. And many, many, many prayers have been answered, and, and, and God doing things in our hearts. But I want to suggest as we come into these last six weeks or so before the election in our nation, where it seems as if it can be so easy to fall off into a pit of despair, it, it can be so easy to assume that the enemy is going to win and the people of God are just going to have to pick up with, take up with whatever is left. If instead we realize that Jesus has given us the right to use his name when we pray, when we cry out for mercy when we cry out for his will to be done, we've given the, the, the right to speak that name that is above every other name. That when we speak that name, the Father's ears are tuned, the angel's ears are tuned, the forces of darkness are put on alert. And I want to just say, I believe that the enemy's strategic plan is to get the American Christians more focused on the lateral state of affairs. This politician, that issue, this particular need, this particular situation that seems to be out of control. That our, our focus is this way when our focus needs to be this way. Folks, if hearts don't change, if transformations don't happen in here, we're going to keep dealing with the same issues in this nation forever. But here's what happens. When the Lord pours out his spirit, folks on the inside get changed. Folks that were, were thought of as, as never able to improve, never going to be any different. They're too rich. They're too stubborn. They're too educated. They're too poor. They're whatever. Instead of realizing Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost.
And when I save them, I don't just, I don't just do a little bit of work. I'm doing work from the inside out. <laughs> and I set the captives free. If the Son sets you free, S-O-N sets you free, you shall be free indeed. I'm telling you, it is a strategic ploy of Satan to get the focus of the church on the lateral issues instead of realizing, as Paul said, we don't fight with flesh and blood. Our fight is not this way. Our struggle is against the forces of darkness, the principal authorities in heavenly places. You see, if you don't realize that, if that doesn't drop 18 to 18 inches, you will stay madder than sin at people. You, you won't see past the person. And what happens there is that when that's what we're doing, we're in the place of violating the Lord's heart and our prayers can fall on deaf ears when they go up. Why? The Lord says, you ought to forgive as the Father forgives. That if you don't forgive, the Father won't forgive you. And I'm talking to some Christians today who are so mad at certain political figures that, and you feel like you're justified because of what their position you have assumed to be that is different than your position and you, their name comes up and you just see red. Here's the point. Unless those are released to the Lord, forgiveness of those given back to the Lord where they have offended you, your prayers stop at the sheetrock. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Jesus said, if you don't release, if you don't forgive, the Father won't release you. So, so the enemy wants to keep us at that place where we're staying mad at people, staying mad laterally, and as a result of that, we feel justified in our unforgiveness, and as a result of that, the enemy knows our prayers are shut down. We can be praying all day long, but if I'm holding unforgiveness in my heart toward a politician, toward a person, toward a family member, toward a whatever, it is as if my prayers are wasted. Beyond that, it's wasting your ammunition in the wrong direction. Paul would say, we don't struggle with flesh and blood, but our warfare is in the unseen realm. When you have been given the name of Jesus to use, where throughout the scripture, in the name of Jesus, we pray. But in the name of Jesus, resisting the forces of darkness, and they have to back away. If the church has laid aside its thermonuclear weapon, if we don't ever pick it up to use against darkness, then darkness just keeps pushing and shoving and driving its ground troops to do what the ground troops do. But the strategy, the power is up here in the unseen realm. The call is to follow the words of Jesus when he said, you pray, Father, deliver us from the evil one. Singular, not evil ones, the evil one. Father, in the name of Jesus, rescue us. Rescue us from the evil one. And Jesus, as he hung on the cross, 
looking down upon the very ones who he had every human reason to hate. What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He understood that they were being driven by darkness and not light. He understood that they were being, they were being given the orders to do what they would do. Not from light, not from God, not even from within themselves. Father, forgive. Can, now listen, we've got to clean this thing up on this matter of, of, of a praying church in America. If somehow we get to feeling like we are justified to stay angry, to be resentful, to keep trying to look for, for retributional activities and actions against certain people, that somehow we're on the side of God. What did Jesus say? Unless you forgive them, the Father won't forgive you. Where there's been an offense, where there's even been wrong perpetrated, to release them back unto the Father, I forgive them. I release them. I give them. Then when that happens, heaven is open to you. But if that isn't in place, David would say, the Lord will not hear me. The self-righteous drive that sometimes we can feel like that means I have the right to just stay mad and, 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 and stay resentful. It, it doesn't mean we agree with their position. We, we, we can disagree with the position, but still have a heart for the Lord to rescue the perishing. To be able to pray, Lord, do it again. Oh, and I want to show you a passage that you've been to before, but I want us to look at it again. This is in Acts chapter 9. Find Acts chapter 9 in your Bible. Acts chapter 9 in your Bible. This is the story of a young man named Saul who was famous for his passion against the followers of Jesus. He was, in a sense, the fair-haired boy of the Pharisee sect within Judaism. He, he knew the Scripture. He, he was highly intelligent. He was very articulate. And he was very convinced that what he was doing was exactly what God wanted him to do. He, he would have been perhaps the face, folks, the face that if you could have asked the Jerusalem church, who is the one, who is the one out of all the Jewish leadership, short of the high priests themselves, that you fear the most, that you are most concerned about what he might do to you, your family, to followers of Jesus? More than likely, it would have been the face of Saul of Tarsus that would have emerged. It wasn't just that he was passionate, but he had power to back up his passion. Here's where I'm going with that. The Pharisees, the Pharisees believed that they had the right, they were so righteous, they saw it also right, that they had the right to impose how they interpreted God and the will of God and the ways of God. They had the right to force that upon people, upon other Jews. The Romans, the Romans, when they came in to conquer or occupy an area, 
there was something about them that, that was very important. It was called the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. They wanted the conquered or subjugated territories to be marked by peace and calm and tranquility. Even though the occupied territories were, were land that had been taken away from ones who should have rightfully owned it, but the Romans would just say, you got to live with that. We're here. You behave yourself. So what they would do is, as they would move into an area, as they moved into to Jerusalem, to Judea, they understood who the movers and shakers were among the people, the organizations, in this case, the religious systems. So they drew up a pact. You support us, Pharisees, and we will allow you to carry out what you feel like you need to do that's important to your religious exercise. The reason that Saul could petition the high priest for troops to accompany him to arrest followers of Jesus is because in a very real sense, he was in bed with the political structure. He, they would, there were things theologically that certainly they were different, but from a practical standpoint, Saul had his, his ability to enforce arrests and to capture people and to separate families because the Roman political system was giving it the okay. So here you have somebody who's passionate, articulate, smart, focused, but also has the backing in a sense of governmental entities against you. Is there any hope? What was, was, was Saul of Tarsus going to be able to do whatever he wanted to do with no Christians having the authority to counter his authority? Well, let's see what the Bible has to say about Saul. Verse 1, chapter 9, Acts. Now Saul's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground. And heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Who are you, sir? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it should be told you what you must do. Folks, for so many years, we've read all the things that Paul wrote post-Damascus Road that we've forgotten where in the world the boy was pre-Damascus Road. I want to tell you, you pick out any face of any political figure, of any family member, of any rich person, of any person in authority, you pick out the face of any one of them. <laughs> and you hold your hand over Acts chapter 9 and aim it at that picture and then lift your head, Lord, do it again. Pour out your spirit. 
Pour out yours. But folks, if we feel like we've got license to stay mad, if we feel like we have license to continue to resent, then we will never pray that way. But when the heart of Jesus is working in our hearts, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then we participate with the Holy Spirit in what he's doing in our day and around us. Ananias, the Christian there in Damascus, was sent, was sent to, to see Paul or Saul. And, and you remember the, the, the story of that, of how, how he, he, he goes in and, and he he's finally meets with, with, with Saul and, and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight. And then look at this. And be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's another part, folks, of what it may very well be that the church in America is just acting as if it's not even in the Scripture. We get the part about forgiveness, I think, that forgiveness of sins is through the blood of Jesus, our faith in what he did for us on the cross. But Ananias was sent to Saul to say, there is something else and more and beyond forgiveness, Saul, that the Lord wants you to have. And it is that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. You, you, can't, you can't say, well, it always happens immediately at conversion or it always has to happen at some point later. It doesn't really matter when it happens, just as long as it happens, that somewhere along the way, you as a child of God, you who have received Jesus as Savior and Lord, somewhere along the way, you have experienced, you have received whatever it is that's being talked about here, the power of the Holy Spirit coming to work in your heart. If we don't ever get there, if we never are open to that, Lord, fill me with your spirit, we keep trotting back to the cross. We keep having to go back continuously, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, because there's not any power working tangibly, organically in us to keep us from wanting to go back there. This was the word. This was the word to Saul. Saul, it's not just that you're to trust in Jesus as your Savior. But Jesus wants you to have, wants you to experience. And in order for you to fulfill the destiny he has for you, it's incumbent upon you that you be filled and you keep being filled and you stay filled with his spirit. Folks, it's not enough to know what the Bible says. That's important. But you can beat people to death over how they need to behave and what they need to quit doing. But if you keep doing that and you don't ever tell them about the promised power of the Spirit of Jesus alive in them, you can create, you can create a disheartened, discouraged. Some folks just walk away from the church because all they've gotten are the rules. It's, a, it's not old legalism. It's a new kind of legalism. Here's what you got to quit. And here's what you better do. But we never talk about Fill me hard. I need the helper. Fill me with the helper. Jesus said, there's a helper coming. And he's just like me. 
He's my spirit, not the physical presence, but it is my spirit inside you. And that is, folks, what happened on the day of Pentecost. That is what happened in the early church. I know I say this, but I just got to keep saying it. Somewhere along the way, we've swapped copies of Scripture for the power of the Spirit. We've swapped copies of the Bible for the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit was given 1,500 years to the church before a printed copy of the Scripture was ever available to the church. It doesn't mean that it's not true. It doesn't mean that it's not important. But what it means is we'll still look at these standards, even the New Testament, as impossible goals to reach unless we understand Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to, the children, to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who are asking him? Lord, fill me. Lord, fill me. Lord, fill me. That happens on an individual basis. And it can be at the time that you really come to know Jesus. It may be that some time passed. I feel like that was a story in my life that I knew about forgiveness. I knew about trusting Jesus. But it wasn't until several years later in my life that I really began to thirst. Lord, what is this? What is this power of Pentecost? What, what, What is this? The old man passing away and a new person coming. I still feel like I'm as much an old man as I was, though I just know clearer what I ought not to do. How's the, and I just began to pray, Lord, whatever you meant, whatever you did with Peter, whatever you did with Paul, whatever you did in that early church, would you just help me with that? Would you fill me with your spirit? And I'm going to tell you, I'm not... I'm not at all trying to put myself up on the category of those great Christians, but I am saying to you, you look at their examples, and you look at what they used to be, and you look at what was driving them before Jesus and before they were filled with the Spirit, and it gives to every one of us the hope, the hope that if God can so cleanse Saul and then so fill Saul with his Spirit that he becomes a champion in the favor of the very one that he was trying to kill the followers of (laughs) and keep him in that direction. Lord, if you can do that for Saul, if you can do that in Peter's life, I'm asking you, fill me, fill me, fill me. Some folks say, well, I don't don't want that. I don't know what this tongues thing is. Don't worry about that part. We we get so freaked out of what that means. The point of it is, The 120 were filled with the Spirit, and they were powerfully given, supernaturally given the ability to speak the gospel in a language they didn't understand. But somebody needs to hear this. Somebody said, well, you just need to to speak in tongues. You need to speak like the the apostles did. Okay, okay, if that's your posture, if that's your position, defend this. Why do we have any evidence, have no evidence, that the 3,000 who came to know Jesus as Savior and Lord on the day of Pentecost ever spoke in a language that they didn't know. Prove it from the text. I'm not talking about your theological system. I'm talking about let the Bible. Here's the point. The power of God poured out on Peter, James, and John and the 120 gave them the ability to speak of Jesus in languages they didn't know because there were all those people there from all those countries that needed to hear it in their language. You turn the page, another group of people respond to the message on the day of Pentecost 
But the power that worked in them was they didn't want to go home. They were there from all over the world, all over the known world. But there was so much of life and there was so much of joy and freedom and the reality of what they had been there to worship that they didn't want to go home. They stayed in Jerusalem. They were moving in with folks they didn't even know. That's why it was part necessary for folks to share, sell what they had, give what, so that everybody would have something to eat. A whole bunch of them didn't have a street address. They were homeless in a sense. But their passion was for Christ. And there was the supernatural ability given to the next group who experienced the filling of the Spirit with the ability to want to be taught, to want to share, to, to want to share their faith. You see, that's important. We try to come along with this little cutting. Well, God's always got to do it the same way. Power has always got to be expressed in the same way. No, it doesn't. You can't even prove that from the Scripture. But what you can prove is when Jesus said, but you shall receive power, after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, there are going to be evidences of power in a life. For some, it may be the ability to speak in an unknown language. For others, it may be the ability to unselfishly and with joy in your heart sell a piece of land and bring it and give it to the leaders of the church as it happened in that time so that folks who were there would be taken care of. And you're good about that. Selling your property, giving the proceeds away, and you're good about that. How about power for that? Huh? How about power for that? We, 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 we make it so small, and then it's some of those things that we can't understand that we think, I don't want that. Here, here's, here's what we do want. We want the manifest presence of Jesus pulsing through our lives. Because as that happens, here's what else happens. His love pulses through you. His joy radiates your heart. His patience takes you through the storms of impatience. Love, joy, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Now that's what happens on an individual level. But what in the world is it like when God begins to do that on a corporate level? Those were the stories that I was referencing as we began this. The Lord's heart can be, and it is, not just to fill you up with his peace and his joy. Then now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In the place where we look at all this stuff and it seems hopeless, the God of hope hadn't given up hope. But if we keep trying to drink these other fountains, then all is about the lateral information, we'll end up drying up on hope. But when their eyes are shifted, Lord, God of hope, I'm asking you to fill me with joy and peace and believing that I may abound in hope, overflow with hope, overflow with hope by the power of your Spirit. When we do that, then it seems as if the perspective for the church is as it ought to be. People are not determining the outcome. The Lord will determine the outcome. We are instructed to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Why, why would he have told us to express ourselves in that way if it made no difference? But it's that 
it does make a difference. We are on this earth. Thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. We're positioned on this earth. He's positioned sovereignly over everything. But our place of agreement is with his heart, for his heart to be done on this earth. That's what I want to say to you. I want to encourage you. Reconvene, regather, regather your prayer circle, if you would consider that, if you would do that. And I want to encourage us to set aside a day. I'm going to say Thursday, a Thursday. The next six Thursdays leading up to the election. And as we set aside, and hopefully if you could set aside an hour, your group may not be all able to pray together, Zoom it, or physically be together. But if it would be a place of agreed prayer. Jonathan Edwards said, he wrote a, he wrote a, a, a tract or a pamphlet that was entitled, A Call to United Extraordinary Prayer. Jonathan Edwards said that one of the ways, and this is, he was the, God used him to begin the first great awakening. He said, one of the ways that you can know that something is up, something is astir in the other world, is when God's people begin to find themselves being drawn to each other to pray, and they are willing to meet at extraordinary times. It's not just Sunday. It's not just a usual time, and that's why throughout the history of revival, when you read it even in the, the life of our nation, Jeremiah Lamphere and, the, and the, the, the prayer revival in 1857, it was September 23rd, a Wednesday, 1857. That was the first one, and that was they set aside that hour. Just, just if, if you could come for the whole hour, great. If you only come for 10 minutes, come for 10 minutes, but as time went on, as has been so wonderfully reported, there were 10,000 businessmen in New York meeting to pray. All the churches filled up, firehouses and, and, and police stations all filled up. And then it began to spill over to Philadelphia and Boston and Chicago and, and other places. And the revival fire swept the nation. There's something about agreeing upon, committing to a time together. And I want to encourage you to do that. I'd like to know, as best we could, who you are out there. If you're an individual, that you would join with us in this, or there's a prayer group that you're a part of. You can get us at contactus at alamocity.org. That'll get us, we can get your email, and that won't go anywhere else except just to communicate with you what's going on. I want to try to send out again, but on Thursday morning for these next six weeks, just a brief video of, of encouragement to pray. I want to tell you some more stories about what God's done in this nation, that what he's done before, the outpouring of his spirit at various times when it seemed that it was against all odds and it seemed like things were going in the other direction, and then God just blew it up. He just came and did what only he could do, and the history of our nation has been rewritten because of what happened in the spiritual awakening. The fight against slavery would probably never have, have happened when it did or as quick as it did had it not been for the fire of God stirring in the hearts of people. The foundation of the Father's throne, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. As, as he makes his presence known, what is right is going to be emphasized. And what is just is going to be emphasized. So we start this Thursday... 
If you need to do it at other times in the week, that's just fine. Before here, listen. Listen. What is the church to do? What is the church to do? Are we supposed to hear all the news reports and sit back and wring our hands or try to hide and try to get some doomsday shelter because there's no, no way around this? Or are we supposed to do what the brothers and sisters in Jesus before us have done? We recognize that the times are urgent. The, time, the times are difficult. But that is the time for Jesus to show who he is again to the nation. In the 1857 prayer revival, it wasn't Baptist, it wasn't Pentecostal, it wasn't Catholic, it wasn't Anglican. There, there was no distinction between the churches. It was just a gathering of folks who had a heart to seek the Lord. And as they sought the Lord, the fire of God spread. Okay? Now, I, I, I realize as I say this and, and exhort in this way, there can be some folks say, well, pastor, you need to be preaching on social issues is what you need to preach on. You need to be taking a stand on this political deal and stand against that. Let me tell you something. Unless God changes the hearts of people, we will never, ever see a change in the areas that need to be changed. But when he gets in, Jesus didn't have to lecture Saul of Tarsus on all the places he was wrong about interpreting Scripture. He just showed up. Jesus just showed up. It was just the presence of Jesus. And as a result of that, things came in line and in order. I'm telling you, Satan is wanting to get us focused on all of this in the lateral to the, to the neglect of where Paul says, here's the problem. The problem is here, not here. The stormtroopers are acting out what the orders are from up here. You stand, and you stand in agreement, and you stand firm against the forces of darkness. And then you pray, Lord, forgive them because they don't know what the world they're doing. If that drops 18 inches, you'll be set free. But as long as, it is, as, long as it's seeing faces and mad, and it's gotta, we got to force this stuff, you're never free. And if some of one of those that you're so upset about knocked at your door saying, I heard that, that you know this Jesus, could you tell me about him? You know what you do? If there's unforgiveness in your heart, bring them in and lecture them on the policy tenets that they're wrong on. Straighten them out on this and then we'll get to Jesus. Absolutely wrong order. Lift up Jesus. Lift up Jesus. Lift up Jesus. Lift up Jesus. And what did he say? All men will be drawn unto me. Amen. Lord, you have always surprised your people when you have poured out your spirit in these exceptional, extraordinary ways. Lord, we ask you to give us hearts that are so tuned in with the beat of your heart by the flow of your spirit that we won't be calling something that you're doing something that must be of the devil. 
because it's so different or it's with somebody that we have already written off as trash. Lord, I ask you, forgive us as a church for our unforgiving heart toward those on the outside. Forgive us, Lord. Bring repentance to our hearts for feeling like somehow we are justified in this harbored resentment and even rage toward those that we would disagree with. Who did you go to the cross for, Jesus? Who did you lay your life down for, Jesus? It was for the very ones who were mocking you, who orchestrated the plan for your death in cahoots with the Roman soldiers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They understood many of the things they were doing. We get that. But they didn't understand what was driving them or who was driving them. Lord, will you open our eyes, please, as we seek to pray for an outpouring of your spirit, would you show us where, we're in, where we have been in sin? Well, the unforgiveness of our heart, the words out of our mouths have been contrary to your heart. And Lord, as you humble us, as you show us those places and things, even over these next six weeks, we are asking you to do it again, Lord. Do it again, Lord. Pour out your spirit on this nation. Pour out your spirit upon your church. Pour out your spirit upon your people. Do it again, Lord. Do it again, Lord. Do it again, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, folks, if you never pray that the Lord's will be done in the coming election and the, the things associated with the election, if you are not consistently praying, Lord, I'm, I'm not asking you for my will, but I'm asking you for your will to be done. If you don't pray that way, where you're regularly, every time it comes up, turning it back over to him. Then the election of that day on first Tuesday in November will come. And if it doesn't go the way that you had so wanted it to go, but you never prayed, you never prayed, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. You can be left on that Wednesday morning in a place of despair that God never intended for you as a child to walk in. But if, on the other hand, as we get closer, as the events unfold and we keep praying, Lord, not my will, but your will be, your kingdom come, your kingdom by your spirit to the hearts of men and women, but your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. I believe I can, I can solidly promise you, if, if you have continued to pray that, Lord, I want your will, not my will, no matter what the election results are on that day, you will be at peace. But if you never pray, if you just lock into what the news is reporting and what the prognosticators are saying and all of that stuff, 
and assuming that that is reality. Reality is what God says, not what men say. Reality is what God will do, not what men say they're going to do. Reality is the Lord. Reality is the Lord and his heart. And he doesn't have to tell us everything. He doesn't have to get our vote before he does anything. We ought to have lived long enough where we can sing that song, nod our heads through it all. Through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. That means there were times when I was having to lean on him. Trust means lean on him when I didn't know how long this valley was going to last. Well, I didn't know how long it was going to take me to get to the top of that mountain. But I've learned to trust him. I've learned to trust him. I've learned to trust him. Even though I don't have a clue what is going on. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Those of you who are part of our streaming family, bless you. This group here is thickening up a little bit. And we're glad to have folks back, 9 o'clock, 11 o'clock. We do, we do ask that you honor the mass, that you, you honor the social distancing until we get all clear from our leadership. And if, you, if that's a problem, if that works, you just stay home and watch it here. But, but you don't need to come in here, you know, unless you're at peace, you're okay with being in a, being in a group. And we're so grateful for the technology that is available to us so grateful for many of you, the financial support to make this possible. Bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus. I want you to say this with me. Let's say our two-line prayer together, and I look forward to meeting with you again on this Thursday, this coming Thursday, our first day of prayer. Here's the two-line. Do it again, Lord. Pour out your Spirit. Let's say that together again. Do it again, Lord. Pour out your spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being a part with us today. And we will be praying together, together for our nation. Amen.